Hello and welcome to another episode of Canada with Sea or in English Canada with the Sea. My name is Christina Webb. I'm the project assistant of the Conrad Adenauer Stiftung Canada. Today's topic is about women, peace and security in Canada. In this episode, we'll have a closer look at gender equality, the Canadian Armed Forces and Canada's feminist foreign policy. It is my pleasure to introduce today's guest expert, Ms. Charlotte Duval-Lantoine. Ms. Duval-Lantoine is the Ottawa Operations Manager and a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. She obtained her Bachelor of Arts in History and Political Science at McGill University in 2017. She completed a Master of Military History at Queen's University, during which she started researching on the toxic culture of leadership in the Canadian Armed Forces during the 1990s and its impact on gender integration, which had started in 1989. Her first book was just published on May 15th of this year, titled The Ones We Let Down, Toxic Leadership Culture and Gender Integration in the Canadian Forces. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Today's interview will be conducted by Annika Vaikinas, Project Manager of the Konrad Adenauer Stift on Canada. Annika, over to you now. Thank you, Charlotte, for being with us in the studio today and sharing your expertise in women, peace and security. As you may know, Germany has assumed the presidency of the G7 on January 1st, 2022. And as we all know, the German presidency is being shaped by the reaction to the Russian war of aggression on Ukraine and the worldwide repercussions. The German government is aiming to emphasize further topics, including climate protection, sustainable development, worldwide food security and gender equality. How important is gender equality for women worldwide to secure peace? And what are some of the most pressing issues when it comes to gender inequality in Canada? Well, Annika, thank you very much for having me today. You can look at gender equality and its importance on the standpoint of simply human rights. When you are dealing with people, it is important that they have equal access to rights and enjoy the same opportunities. So gender equality is important just on that front that every human being on earth enjoys the same right as outlined under the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. That said, we have seen that when you include gender equality and other forms of equality in peace processes in international security, you end up with more stable, more democratic and more prosperous countries. And you have more lasting peace. Uh, a big example of that is Sierra Leone after its civil war. When it comes to Canada, one of its most pressing gender inequality issues is the missing and murdered Indigenous women and mm -hmm. girls. Right now in Canada, Indigenous women and girls are six times more likely to be murdered than non-Indigenous women. And that is a big problem that would require a lot of leadership on the part of Canada to resolve. Three powerful women lead the Canadian government strategy on the war in Ukraine. Um, one is Christian Freeland, Canada's Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance. Also, Anita Anand, Minister of Defence and Melanie Jolie, Minister of Foreign Affairs. These three women are making decisions that were historically made by men. How important is female leadership in the efforts to achieve sustainable international peace and security? Women leadership is extremely important because 
it will increase representation and increase legitimacy of governments by showing that it represents everyone in the population, but also women because they tend to have different lived experiences, they can bring new perspective to problems and that can enhance problem-solving capabilities of government. That said, we tend to see inclusion as just bringing in people, but there's a lot of lead work to make sure that that participation, that leadership is meaningful and has real impact. So when we look at leadership, it, it goes beyond just putting people at the table, but also making sure that all the institution and the processes within the, those institutions are changed to make sure that that leadership has the maximum impact. And we, right here, we're looking at a woman's perspective, but the same is true for any other marginalized communities uh, in Canada, you would look at indigenous people, racialized Canadians and the LGBTQ community. It, it goes way beyond but than just putting people in the right spots. It, it goes with supporting them properly. Anita Nan, Canada's Minister of National Defence, is only the second woman in Canadian history to take on the role of National Defence Minister after former Prime Minister Kim Campbell in the 1990s. She is a woman of colour. She is Hindu and of Tamilian Punjabi heritage. What is the representation of visible minorities in public office and what impact does this representation mean for minorities in Canada? Representation is very important, uh, not just because of the aspirational message it sends to marginalized communities across the country, seeing people like them in the higher spheres of power, but also in terms of what perspectives can be included within um, those decision-making. Because when we're dealing with a traditional male and white-dominated fears of government, usually you have some issues, some perspectives that are missing. And to have better decision-making, to have better problem-solving at the government level, you need to make sure that all the perspectives of people impacted by that problem are included and that they are heard. So having a person of color like Anita Anand in national defense is extremely important to bring those new perspectives, to have that new way of thinking. But we also need to make sure that those perspectives are actually included in the policies themselves and that you're dealing with what feminist circles will call meaningful participation and that she enjoys the same power as her other cabinet ministers. In your book, you write about toxic leadership culture and gender integration in the Canadian military. Can you please elaborate about some of the key challenges that female service members faced historically and still face today? Absolutely. And those barriers are plentiful. So to To give a short history, women were included in combat roles in the Canadian military only in 1989 and was ordered to, to reach full gender integration within a decade. That integration, as I say in my book, did not happen. And so right now what we're dealing with is catching up with those failures of integration. Women do not have the proper equipment, the training is ill-adapted. Uh, there is still a problem of valuing the occupations in which women go in the military and valuing 
properly the very specific skill set that they have. And this is a problem when we're dealing with integration is usually we tend to treat integration as an issue of, well, now that we have opened the legal barriers, people will integrate themselves. But usually we do not take into account that these groups, whether women or other marginalized group, have different needs, different approaches to life and different ways of doing things, and they're not as valued. And right now we're catching up with that in the Canadian military, as we have seen in the recent news around sexual misconduct. Sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces has been in the news. What are some of the challenges faced by women who come forward? And why are those cases so rampant in the military? How can Anita Anand shift the culture within the military so that those in uniform feel safe while restoring Canadians' trust in the institution? The barriers that women face when coming forward after experiencing sexual misconduct is usually the same as women in um, the larger Canadian society, and it's the fear of not being believed, uh, the shame that comes with uh, being assaulted or harassed. But on top of that, in the Canadian military, you face uh, the added challenge of a chain of command and the hierarchy that, that can have a lot of weight. The fact that you're in a very close-knit community that has a sense of loyalty that often revolves around the idea of not snitching on one another. And so that, that creates um, serious challenges. The problems that people face when coming forward actually contributes to the issue um, in, of sexual misconduct in the military, and this is why it makes it more rampant. By, by not dealing with those kinds of responses, you get people that commit sexual misconduct not being punished, and the victims feel like they will never be believed and keep silent. And so what Anita Anand needs to do is look at two things. Response to sexual misconduct and prevention. And they kind of go together. But from there, you need to look at three levels of, of relationships within the military. You will look at the institution, how the policies are put in place. Do they actually support survivors? Are the performance evaluation criteria conducive to weeding out and, and preventing the rise in the organization of people who have committed sexual misconduct, then you will look at the formal relationship, the, the relationship that take place uh, during the workplace uh, while they're working together. Mostly we are going to consider that the, the relationship between uh, superiors and their subordinates, how superiors manage the subordinate and if they allow them to uh, offer feedback, have conversation. And then you will look at the informal relationship, how co-workers, how peers behave with one another, what, how do they view loyalty and how do they value each other. That would be very important to look at all those three levels to make sure that you have a holistic response to the problem. 
In the light of the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision to overturn the landmark legal ruling Roe v. Wade that secured constitutional protection for abortion for nearly 50 years, it becomes obvious that abortion and reproductive rights are still contentious issues. How does it fit into the Canadian government's pursuit of its women, peace and security agenda? Reproductive health and access to reproductive uh, rights is central to a woman's ability to choose how many kids she wants when she wants them. That determines a woman's access to education, to a career, and to have a thriving place in the workplace. But abortion and other repro reproductive health choices are also an issue of healthcare. So what you're looking at is also when we restrict access to reproductive health and health services, it is restricting uh, equal rights for women because they cannot access the same level of health care as men do generally. And on top of that, you will add the added complexity of class and wealth. Um, ability and disability and uh, ethnicity. And so it is a fundamental issue of human rights. Canada understands that reproductive health is an important part of gender equality. And it made it a very central part of its Women, Peace and Security Action Plan. So much so that its international assistance packages include helping women to access reproductive services so that they can access that fundamental human right. For several years now, the government of Canada has had a feminist foreign assistance policy and has made promises to develop a feminist foreign policy. What does the feminist approach to foreign policy entail and can you name specific examples? A feminist foreign policy is a foreign policy that will look away from traditional forms of foreign policy, which is usually trade and the use of militaries to actually take a human rights focus with a special attention to traditionally marginalized groups. The issue that feminists found is that you cannot have everlasting peace if you do not take into account the processes that le led to persecution and oppression in the first place. So it is a foreign policy that would look at enhancing diplomacy with a particular focus and attention paid to marginalized voices in order to make peace and democracy accessible to all. Right now, we only have Sweden that has an official feminist foreign policy and other European countries that have made pledges. But Canada so far only has a promise of feminist foreign policy with a feminist international assistance policy and the Women, Peace and Security National Action Plan that, that offer tools for its foreign policy to have a more feminist focus. Some have also flagged the incoherence between the policy's feminist rhetoric and certain actions taken by the Trudeau government. What are some of the shortcomings of this policy and what are your recommendations to improve it? 
As I told you earlier, Canada doesn't have a unified feminist foreign policy, but a few packages that it offers to developing countries abroad. And because of that, there is a lack of cohesion in what Canada offers on the international stage. Its focus is enhancing women's participation in traditional processes. But because of that, it doesn't reflect critically on some of the things we've done. Uh, one of the examples that we're dealing with right now is the sale of arms to, to Saudi Arabia. And the problem with that, that specific example um, is manifold, actually, because the Trudeau government in the first place did not sign that contract. And there is a difficulty to make an economic case to get out of this contract. Selling arms to Saudi Arabia, to Canada, made a lot of economic sense, but that human rights piece stayed on the back burner. And, and you can have that conversation about any country that gets involved with dictatorships. Look at how Western countries are dependent to China for or, or Russia for trade, uh, its economic growth, and, and its energy. And it's because there is a difficulty for countries and governments that stay in such a short phase uh, in power to make the, the case for, well, you, it would be better for you to focus on human rights and down the road spend less on international assistance and development money to support human rights, to support equal rights and support democracy abroad instead of getting that money that is ethically questionable in the first place. And so when you're dealing with value-based policies that are not put in line as a form of interest for the country, you will see those uh, lines of discrepancy in, in Canada and its sale to Saudi Arabia of weapons to Saudi Arabia is a big example of that. Thank you, Charlotte, for being part of this episode of Canada Mitzi. We are very grateful for your time and we wish you great success with your book. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed this particular episode as much as I did. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung Canada and stay tuned for upcoming events, publications and more, you are welcome to visit our homepage and sign up for our quarterly newsletter at www.kas.de slash Canada. Thank you and Cast Canada looks forward to welcoming you back in our next episode of Canada Mid-Sea.